0: Are going to begin in Exodus 33. Let's turn to Exodus 33. I'm jumping right in, as usual, because I'm ready to teach. I'm ready to get back into the text. So we sat in worship this morning. In fact, I need to read it. These lyrics, I think... Now, Chris, where'd your lyrics go? Here it is. I need. Well, there's one that's titled "I Need You," and this one's "I Need You More." "I Need You More" is the one I'm looking for. Listen to this. This is, this is a, a, an image of my soul in studying this week. My soul thirsts for something more than this world could ever provide. My heart aches for something more, for the fountain that never runs dry. Your love is sweeter than wine. Your love is better than life. I need you, Lord. Amen? Amen. This is the thing. Julian, we watched a documentary last night. I'm not not going to get into it, but the, the, the main thrust of what was being communicated is essentially, if you believe God and you read his word and you do A, B, and C, you're going to get fixed. Your heart's going to be great. True or false? Isn't that what the church so often communicates? That if you only do these steps you're never going to struggle with the old man and the old woman? Totally false. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has given you a new heart through faith in him? Yes or no? That's the promise of God's word. I have a new heart. Is that old guy, that old jerk that I want nothing to do with? Why does his heart still puke into my mind and out of my mouth and into my circumstances? You feel like you're the only one? We're going to begin with Moses this morning, and then we're going to shift into David. But both of these men, in both of the contexts we're going to look at, they are motivated by pity. This word pity, it's a, this, the idea of compassion. Compassion is sympathetic pity for the suffering and the trouble in somebody else's life. Listen to God defying himself. Remember last week, we ended in Psalm 54. I encourage you to go read it just to be refreshed and just sit in that. But David is crying out, save me by your name. Deliver me by your power. And we talked last week just we can cry out to the name of Jesus and be crying out to an idol because the name that we're crying out to is according to our definitions of the world's definitions and not according to who he has revealed himself to be. And We're going to sit in God defining himself this morning. We're jumping into the middle of a context. If you've never read through the book of Exodus, do it. Fascinating powerful. But we're jumping into Moses. Moses has interacted with God in all these incredible supernatural ways. He's been up on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, as God is speaking to him. Face-to-face is the language that is being used. The Jews, because Moses is gone for too long, they've turned immediately to idolatry. And every time I read the passage, what a bunch of morons, right? then i look at my own heart my whole my own heart is so easily inclined the old heart is inclined towards self towards sin to all these other things that i don't want anymore because he has given me the new heart and he's changed my desires and my wants but here moses is sitting in this context in imagery he is He is a type of Christ in the sense of when you read through this passage, look at Moses as an intermediary, as an intercessor on behalf of the people. Chapter 33, verse 12 is where we're going to read through. Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said... I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. Now, again, if you know the context, you know the story, you know Moses' background, I mean, sit in his context in his prayer. Think of all the interactions that he's had with the Lord. And here he is just crying out in humility and in truth to the Lord. Lord, show me your way. And if you lead me in my life, then I'll know you. I'll have a relationship with you. I'll know you and understand you. Consider this nation that you've delivered to be your people. God says to Moses. He says, my presence, and it's literally my face, will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, Lord, if your presence does not go with, well, wait a minute, Moses. God just said, my presence is going to go with you. So is Moses having a conflict of faith here? No, but is he repeating God's word to him? Yeah, keep doing it all the time, If your presence does not go with us, Lord, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight? Again, this chosen nation is to be a witness in regards to the true and living God to all of mankind. And I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us. So we shall be separate, literally distinguished treated excellently, treated specially, because, again, God's calling, God's choosing, God's transformation in their life, and this witness for anybody who wants to become part of a nation, this nation, there was a way to do it. Just like in the New Testament, there's a way to become part of His body, which is through faith in His Son. We shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. I need to speed up or we're never going to finish today. I love, I, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses says, please, show me your glory, Lord. Again, I, I, just, I love this because immediate context, the Lord is speaking to Moses face to face. And here Moses, just in this conversation with the Lord, God confirming things in his prayer, and what, what's the yearning of his heart? I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to be like you. He still recognizes within himself just the lack, even though he's in this great communion with God. Verse 19, then he said, the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will, pro- I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We're going to sit in God's compassion all this morning. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be... While my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hands while I pass by. Then I will take my hand, away my hands, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Verse, uh, chapter 34, the Lord says to Moses, "'Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones.' And Moses threw down in anger and broke, and God says, "'I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke.'" So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. The Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. Here's our target. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood by him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Merciful, that is our word, compassion, pity, compassionate, and gracious, long-suffering means that God is slow. God is slothful to anger, is what long-suffering means in the context. And abounding in goodness, usually translated as mercy in the Old Testament, God's loyal love has said, abounding in goodness, and truth is faithfulness. Keeping mercy, again, This it's the same word for goodness there. Keeping goodness, keeping mercy, keeping his loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity That's your evil and transgression, your crimes and sin, all the ways that you have missed his perfection. By no means, clearing the guilty, literally, by no means, uh, unpunishing, allowing to go free, the guilty is the idea visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Again, there's consequences because of sin, is the idea there. God expresses the same idea in the Ten Commandments. Later on in the Word, He makes it very clear that each man and each woman is responsible for their own sin. Don't let the children say, This is going on. My sin is because of my father. God tells us clearly not to say that. However, there are consequences of sin in our life. New Testament says God will not be mocked. Do you not know that you will reap what you sow? Fruit. All right, verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, my Adonai, my Master, I pray, go among us. Even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Now, just major ideas here. If, if, if I were to express who I am to you, I could give you a list of my qualifications, what I do for work, uh, maybe some personality traits and those kinds of things, but look at the language that God uses in defining himself. And I want, to be, I want to be really clear here is that there are many voices in this world, including your own, that will write down and imprint on your own heart definitions about your creator that are not true. They're not in line with who he has revealed himself to be. And again, we are not allowed to define God. He is the one who has defined himself and made himself known to us. So if any time you feel in your mind, in your heart, in your life, that God is not merciful, you are not right. God is always merciful. He is always compassionate. When you go and you read the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Matthew, over and over and over again, we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion for the people. There was something that he saw in an individual or in a group that motivated him, and the the idea that what was motivating him, that feeling, was the idea of pity, sympathetic compassion, sympathetic pity for people who were suffering. He had compassion on the people because they were like sheep scattered with no shepherd, nobody there to lead them, to provide them, to care for them, to protect them. By whose choice? By the sheep's choice. What we are going to witness in David in his interaction with Saul today is the expression of God's attribute of pity, of compassion. And again, this is going to be really challenging because we're going to ask ourselves the question, if your enemy, and I don't have an enemy in my life right now, so this is really easy for me, but you may have somebody that you define as an enemy. I've had people that I've defined as an enemy in my head and it felt really good to mentally beat them up. I would never do it physically, but I had the, the, uh, the fantasy. Like So this is an easy emotion for me right now. But if you have an enemy, somebody who is hurting you, troubling you, hunting you, attacking you, hurts hurt you, caused you pain, If God placed your enemy into your hand today and said, do what you want, what would you do? Let's go see what David does. 1 Samuel 24. And we're in this long journey of Saul hunting David. David. Last week, we watched the Ziphites say, hey, Saul, don't you know that David's over in this location? And Saul uses this word, blessed are you of the Lord, you have, you have compassion on me. You know, these, the Ziphites were sympathetic in their pity for Saul's position is the word that Saul is using in compassion. But we're going to watch David's pity come out today. First, er, chapter 24, verse 1. It happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines. So remember, God, in all of the circumstances, guiding in their lives, sent a messenger into Saul's life. Philistines are attacking, so he went and defended from the Philistines, and David was able to escape. Now Saul has returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi." And again, if you get out a uh, Bible map, super helpful. And Getty's, you know, right there by the Dead Sea. And this is, this is in the middle of the wilderness. You get into these mountains. It is rocks. It is dust. Nothing is growing whatsoever. There's these wadis, which are when it rains, they're filled with water. Most of the time they're not. And Getty is sourced by a natural stream. So in this canyon, there's a couple of canyons right here in, in Getty. Both of them are green and lush. They're protected from the heat of the sun. It's a place, it's a true oasis. So this is where David and his men are hiding out. Saul takes 3,000 chosen men. Remember, David's got 600 men with him. Saul takes 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road, And there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe, Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up, rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. There's a ton going on here. So here, David and his men just so happen to be at the back of this cave. So, right, they've got their scouts out. They know that Saul is returning and on the hunt with 3,000 men. Scouts say, hey, we see him around this bend over here. Here's a cave. There's caves all over the place in this region. And his 600 men go into the back of the recesses of the cave. Everybody be quiet, be silent. David and a couple of his, you know, his, his main men are going to be with him right there, looking out the entrance, you know, peeking, seeing what's going on. And it says it's by the sheepfolds. You know, there, there's, there's nothing random in the word of God at all. What does the sheepfolds remind you of? What was David before the Lord anointed him? It's a shepherd. Saul, in his own context, was a shepherd in his father's house. As we have watched the narrative through Samuel, Saul is completely exposed to us as a bad shepherd, where David is exposed to us as a good shepherd. These sheepfolds are stone walls, whether they're square or circular. They're, the stones have been stacked up. And there's an opening on one side, and they're stacked up high enough that a sheep can't jump over. Uh, You know, uh, an animal wouldn't be able to jump over either. And the door is the shepherd. The shepherd sleeps across this pen, or, you know, they're all rounded up. All the sheep are in here, so the shepherd stands there right at the door, so nobody can go in and out without the shepherd's knowledge. This is John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheepfold. Do you not know I am the good shepherd? All of this imagery that we have in regards to God being the good shepherd is being expressed here in this passage simply by pointing out that here's some sheepfolds. And a place that animals were also stored often would be in caves. So these sheepfolds are by a cave that all of these animals could be shoved into a cave large enough to protect them from the weather if needed. So David and his men are all in the back. David and a couple of other guys are able to see what's going on on the outside as they're telling everybody to hush. And what does Saul do? Saul's been looking at his watch, driving in the car, saying, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? i got to go potty. When's the next rest stop? This is what it means that he's in there attending to his needs. He's covering his feet. Saul goes into this cave. More than likely, he takes off his outer robe. Imagine him throwing it over a rock nicely as he's attending to his needs going potty. And what did David and his men do? David's got a couple of men right beside him. David, this is the day. There's your enemy. God told you. I am going to let your enemy be placed into your hands. And God told David, you can do with him whatever you want to do. What are you going to do? What do you think David should do? Saul's tried to kill him multiple times. Saul has had, through his orders, innocent men and women and children, executed violently in his evil in his wickedness in his sin does saul deserve to die yes or no david could easily justify executing saul easily and we're told we're not told what david says to the guys in that moment but david gets up and goes creeping towards saul His guys probably expect that David's going to take his knife and gut Saul, slash his throat. And rather than taking advantage of Saul in the moment, David, in secret, cuts off the corner of Saul's robe and he goes back to his guys. And then what does the text tell us? David's heart is thumping. Why? Why? Why do you think David's heart is thumping in his chest? Is he nervous? Have you ever felt your blood pressure increase and you you feel your heart beating in your chest? You can feel the the blood thumping in your ears. You can hear your own heartbeat beating. Have you ever felt that kind of stress before? Have you ever attempted to do something that you know is wrong and your heart is sitting there beating that You don't do it. Yeah? Whether he is physically feeling this thump Or it's his conscience, one of the two. The New Testament talks about our conscience a lot. And our conscience could be good, and it can be bad. It can be defiled, and it can be cleansed. But when he talks about our conscience, it's we we need to seek to have a good and clear and healthy conscience before God. In our thought life, in our verbal life, in our actions, Paul repeats this over and over again, that he has a clear conscience before God as he's he's living out his life. Paul didn't always have a clear conscience. He had a stick in his back, a proverbial stick from Jesus where he says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, right? Paul's mind and his heart were troubling him as he was persecuting Christians because he was being exposed to the truth in regards to who Jesus Christ was, and he kept going down the road of rebellion to God rather than submission. And it took that radical moment for Jesus to manifest himself to Paul on the Damascus Road for Paul's heart to be changed. Paul knew what it like to have that thumping conscience going on inside of him and doing what he wanted to do anyways in opposition hold your place here i want you to turn to numbers chapter 15 because i think numbers 15 tells us exactly why david's heart is troubling him so when david sneaks up to saul's robe and he cuts off the corner the corner of saul's robe is very specific David himself is going to be wearing a robe that has a similar corner on it. Numbers 15, 37 says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassels on the corners. And you shall have the tassel, and here's Why? that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord of the Lord, and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am the Lord your God. Again, look at at the definition that God's giving. I I want you to sew in the corner of your clothes a tassel, something something that's going to hang loose. And the whole point of it is to give the Jews a daily reminder of God. Remember who I am, remember what I've said, remember what I've done, and respond accordingly. So when David goes and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, he cuts this tassel off of Saul's robe. So it's not just this garment that is identifying Saul as a king and some kingly garment and kingly robe. The idea is this corner. It's this tassel. So as David goes back to his men, he's looking at what's in his hand. And what is in his hand is is what God has instructed this this portion of clothing is to remind you about me it's to remind you about my nature my character my compassion my mercy my grace my patience my authority my will will you believe in me will you trust in me will you follow me so as David is looking at what he has removed from Saul's robe And in recognition of the tassels that are on his own robe, his conscience is convicting him. And he says to the men that the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to to my Adonai, to my Lord, to my master, the Lord, Yahweh's anointed, Yahweh's Messiah. God forbid that I would stretch out my hand against him seeing that god is the one that has anointed him so with these words with david's behavior he's restrained his own servants from from attacking saul and his men and taking advantage of the moment this is a this is a big idea here is that we're not told we're not revealed when god spoke these words to david But here, David doesn't contradict his men, right? At some point, God told him that God, the Lord God is going to give your enemy into your hands and you can do whatever you want. This was a test from God and David's life. What What if David killed Saul, executed Saul in this moment? Would David still have become king? Yeah, he would have become king in that moment. What kind of consequences would be in his life? No idea. But in God working in David's life, God orchestrated this circumstance on this particular day to test the heart of David. David, will you trust me? David, will you follow me? David, will you remember my words? Will you remember what I've done for Saul? Will you remember what I've done for you? Will you trust me in this moment? Yes or no? And this, again, this this is an incredible test that David aced in this moment. Because the compassion of God became the compassion of David's heart. Now look at this, this next scene as they get up out of, you know, well, here. Saul gets up and leaves the cave, right? Verse 8, David also arose afterwards. So Saul's left the cave, going down to the other men. David is not exiting with all 600 men. He's coming out himself. I'm sure his close servants are there with him. And he cries out to Saul saying, My Lord, the king, my Adonai, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped. David has bowed down with his face to the earth and bowed down physically, positionally in his heart, in humility. And David says to Saul, this is, this is a great question. Why do you listen to the words of men? This is a, this is a great question for you to write down for yourself because, again, we have all of these other voices that we can listen to that stand in opposition to what God has said in his word. Why do I listen to these words? Why do I allow myself to get confused and twisted up and, um, you know, moved away from what is true by the words of men and women? But Saul, why do you listen to the words? Saul's got counselors around him that are saying, indeed, David, David, David seeks your harm. David is seeking evil in your life, Saul. Look. This day, your eyes, Saul, have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you. This is our word. My eye had pity on you. Think of, think of everything that Saul has done in David's life up until this point. Does David? Does Saul deserve David's pity? Not one ounce of it. And as David is imaging for us the heart of Christ, do you deserve God's pity? I don't deserve it at all. Then why do I have it? Because it's who he is. How do I know it's who he is? Because that's what he told me. I'm compassionate. I see my face sees your suffering, Blake. I see your heart. I see how your heart is inclined towards harlotry, towards evil, towards idolatry. I've given you in your life all of these reminders to remember me, to to trust in me, to have faith in me, to follow me. I give, he's given me tassels all over my garments, right? That I would remember him, that I would remember his pity. When I sit here and I look at David in this moment, my eye spared you. I, my, my, my heart immediately goes to God's eye has spared me. He had pity on me when I didn't deserve his pity at all. David says, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father. Because again, you've you got to continue to press into David's passion, his emotion what you already know about him. Just think of the emotion of this circumstance. Think of, again, he just had the opportunity to execute Saul. He chose not to do it. He cuts off his tassel. He's convicted in his conscience. All of this emotion, all of the adrenaline that's going on, Saul has left the cave. David is coming out of this cave with all of this emotion in his words. I will not stretch out my hand against My Lord, for he is Yahweh's Messiah. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord, let Yahweh judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you, but by my hand, my hands shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? The dead dog? The flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge. And judge between you and me. And see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Big thing, not just David's pity that he is expressing towards Saul. What kind of bold faith does David have in this moment? Think about it. David just ran ran out of cave. His men are all in the recesses. And he's coming out to the man that wants to kill him, and he knows it, and to his 3,000 soldiers that are outside. Does David trust in his God, yes or no? Boldly. Complete and total trust that I am God's, he will protect me. He is here. He has led me. He has tested me on this day. I have passed this day. I have no crime in my heart. I am not seeking evil for in, in anybody else. David has a bold faith in God and a very humble faith also. Who am I, Saul? Who, who am I that you've taken 3,000 of the cho- choice men of Israel and are hunting me? A flea? A dead dog? Why are you here? What does Saul do? This is is one of the reasons that just drives me nuts with Saul. And it also gives me great hope for Saul and great hope for my own life in God. Because here in Saul's insanity, he has a moment of clarity again. And he has a lot of these. Verse 16 says, So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Remember, in earlier context, he won't even mention David's name. He keeps calling him the son of Jesse. But in this moment, Saul is convicted. Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifts up his voice, and he weeps. Picture the emotion of this. Again, Saul is in his own conviction in this moment. He's sitting in clarity. He's sitting in the understanding that his whole life just passed before his eyes. The one that he is identifying as enemy, he had my life in his his hands. And all of this emotion is coming out. Verse 17. Then he said to David, you are more righteous, just, innocent than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you With evil. And you you have shown this day how you have dwelt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? No. It's not how the world works. Therefore, may the Lord reward you repay you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name and my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold, probably Masada. So again, look at just Saul's words as he's responding to David. One, it's emotional. He is having a clear moment of clarity. He is confessing that, David, your behavior, you are more righteous than I am. I've been hunting an innocent man. You have just clearly revealed for all to see that you are not my enemy because clearly if you were my enemy, you would have taken my life. Because if the coin was flipped, would Saul have killed David? You better believe it without even thinking about it. Where Saul says in verse 20, That he knew indeed that he should surely be king. This is looking back to Saul's couple of interactions in in chapters 13 and 15 as Saul is being disobedient. And Samuel comes to Saul 1 and 13 saying that God has stripped the kingdom of Israel away from you. And that he is seeking a man. He has found a man after his own heart. Verse 15, the kingdom of God is torn away from Saul. Just as when Saul was pleading for for mercy and for forgiveness and that Samuel wouldn't turn away, remember that Saul reaches out and tears the corner of Samuel's robe. All of this imagery keeps coming up in this passage. Now, application. Saul's got a great confession here, yes. Saul has a moment of clarity. Saul doesn't kill David, and Saul goes home at this moment. Is that good? Yeah. Is he sitting in conviction? Yes. Was he sitting in truth? You know, what's real in regards to circumstance rather than bad advice in his own head and other people's lives and heart? He's got all of this clarity. How long does it last? This is is why Saul breaks my heart. Because his confession is temporary. His sanity is temporary. His repentance doesn't ever seem to be there. He doesn't ever seem to really have a turn. I hope Saul had a 180 saving faith turn away from himself to faith in his creator. I hope that we'll see Saul in eternity, but I'm not confident about it because his life led a series of question marks behind him. But this is why Saul drives me nuts, because I look in my own heart in the mirror And there's been so many different times where I have run into the Lord and have my heart beating in my chest and I'm sitting in conviction and I have that clarity and I'm remembering his word. I'm remembering what he's done. I feel like my conscience is defiled and I come to confession in Jesus Christ and I'm I'm cleansed in the moment and he's keeping me. And then my evilly inclined heart so quickly turns back to the old guy. Like, do you ever have those moments of, you know, just a a thought comes into your head? It's like, where did that come from? I mean, I've been saying, you know, I mean, a couple times this week, you know, I'll say something about somebody or a circumstance, and I'm giving the confession before the words even come out of my mouth, because I'm thinking something about somebody, and I still say it to Julie anyways, like, can you believe this person, yada, 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 no, I shouldn't be saying this about them, and bless their hearts, and that kind of attitude, But it's like where did the where does that old heart even come from my thoughts that you gave me a new heart god why am i not fixed yet do you not know that i pray to you every day do you not know that i read your word every day do i not deserve the brand new heart that you've promised you ever sit in that at all and then i have to sit in like this encouragement from david like wait a minute no god has given me a new heart And the reason why I struggle with these emotions, because when the old heart speaks up, I don't want that anymore. Those things that I used to pursue, those things that I used to desire, those attitudes of pride, of exalting myself above everybody else, thinking like, I've got everything together. Seriously, reading through the Old Testament, man, the nation of Israel, these guys are so stupid. I've got this figured out. And then you travel with the Lord through a season and he brings about repetitious tests for you. I have been tested by God. This circumstance is going to come across in your life and you can do whatever you want to do. And I've chosen wrong before. And God hasn't abandoned me. He hasn't turned his face away from me. His face, his presence, his compassion, his pity, his mercy, his truth, his word, He has never left me. He has never abandoned me. He has never forsaken me. He has always been there. And what that does for me is it keeps me humble like David. It keeps me in this position where, God, I trust you. I don't understand this circumstance. I don't understand why I'm thinking this way other than, Lord, I am a broken man, and I need you to fix me. And even if I do A, B, and C, as I've done for the last 20 years, and the old man still comes throwing up himself into my mind and into my life, Lord, I'm not going to get bogged down into all of that because I believe and I know what it is that you have already done in me and transformed in me. I know that there's not a list of works that are going to keep me loving you. What is going to keep me loving you is the new heart that you've given to me that no longer wants the other stuff, even though it comes into my life. You've given me the new heart that is passionately in love with you. And that is what is the, the, like these tassels, this reminder in my life. Of, it encourages me through the Holy Spirit, through the cross of Christ, to constantly keep God before me to pursue compassion. To pursue compassion with myself and not hatred with myself when I drive myself nuts. Compassion with other human beings in the body of Christ. Can you believe what they did? I thought they believed in Jesus. Yeah, they do. And they're just as broken as I am. And the pity that God has demonstrated towards me, Blake, I've created in you a new heart and a clean clean heart, and a compassionate heart, and a long-suffering heart, and a faithful heart, and a trustworthy heart, and a heart that is filled with my truth, a heart that has my presence. As I lead you down the way, have I not made myself known to you? And I look back on the course of my 46 years, and I can see a thousand ways God has made himself known to me his compassion, his grace, and his pity. And it is, it's this, it's this um, worship team, come on up. In, in this contrast of, of Saul and David, and why, why Saul bothers me so much is because I see in my own life and I see in the lives of so many others, there's this close of the saving faith in Jesus Christ like, I know who, who, in whom I believe, and the exhortation this morning is I want you to make sure that you know in whom you believe. Who is it that goes with you in life? Who is it that has created you? Who is it that died on the cross? Who is it that has given you his word? Who is it that has given you the new heart and the new mind and the desire to continually follow, to follow him? To do what he tells you to do, not because you need to follow this list of rules, because the list of rules will not change you. But when you love him and you seek him and you go through the list of rules, the don't do this and the do do that. Lord, you've given me this desire to aim me in this direction as I follow you, and I'm going to trust in you to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, and not get bogged down in all of the messiness of life. It is very easy to sit in, why hasn't God fixed me? Why hasn't God changed me? Why hasn't God transformed me? Why hasn't you? are putting all of these, this guilt and issue upon God when he is the one who's told you exactly who he is and exactly what he's done. And our response to him is, Lord, I trust you. So as we continue to worship this morning, as we press into communion, if you don't know who your creator is, ask him to make him known to you. Ask him to, Lord, if you don't leave with me out of this room, I don't want to leave this room unless your presence goes with me. Because it's when your presence goes with me, it's as I am following you, then I will know you. Free me from guilt. Free me from condemnation. Free me from a heart like Saul. And give me this faith that David had. Give me this heart of passion and compassion and pity for other human beings that, Lord, I just want you to do away with them all. I don't want that heart. Jesus, I want you to get them to save them, not get them to cut them off. Cut them off from their sin. Amen? Worship your Savior in humility and truth and in the power of His Spirit.